you know how Facebook has those very specific targeted ads that yes. it's like they know exactly where you've been looking around on the internet. Exactly. So I was on the other day and up pops an ad for a vintage baseball uniform and hat outfitter. I must have been searching for, you know, old school Tigers gear at some point. So I'll pops this ad, I click on it. And the first thing I see on this site is a jersey for an old baseball team called the House of David. Have you heard of the House of David? I have never heard of the House of David. Yeah, I hadn't either. Turns out it's one of the strangest Michigan rabbit holes I have ever gone down. The House of David was a religious colony. They had a baseball team, but it's so much more than that. It's fascinating and at one point very disturbing. Well, our mismatched listeners are about to learn a lot about this. And Zach Rosen, producer, you're going to take the reins. Uh, this is Roger Weber, the host and narrator of Mismatch, but uh, I'm glad to hand it over to you for a fascinating story. Ron Taylor is busy. He's trying to tell me his life story, but he's got other people vying for his attention. My sister. Hello. Ron has a long, shaggy gray beard. I can't tell exactly how long because he wears it tied up in a bun. And his hair is covered with a brown newsboy cap. Last time I had a haircut was in 1971. I only shaved twice. I couldn't grow a beard to begin with. It, was just, it wouldn't come through as I only shaved like. Ron lives on 54 acres of what was once a bustling religious colony in Benton Harbor. Well, the, the, the theology is, is, is Christian. However, the, the roots are back to the Jewish idea of when you go back into the time of, of Christ and before, the Jewish nation looked for a Messiah that would recreate a kingdom on earth for Israel. That's what we believe. To be a true House of David follower, you vow not to shave, drink alcohol, eat meat, or have sex. And since the colony forbade sex, even for procreation, Ron Taylor is one of the last members left. And you've had a number of jobs here. Oh. List them for me. <laughs> <laughs> I help with concrete work. I do carpentry. I run the office. I do the, the mail service. I do the paper monthly. I'm cleaning an apartment right now. I do plumbing. I run the gardens up here at Shiloh. I run the museum. I'm the director of that. I created the archive. And I do roofs, repair work. I'm up on a roof quite often. You know, so, yeah, it goes on. That's and on. it? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's Amazing. all. Yeah. If you chose not to have sex ever again, not to start a family, how would you want to spend the rest of your life? Israelite House of David was founded by a married couple from Kentucky, Benjamin and Mary Purnell. But long before they established a religious colony on the west side of Michigan, they traveled the country, preaching. To make money, the Purnells made and sold brooms out of their horse-drawn wagon. An old black-and-white photo shows Benjamin with his then-teenage kids, Hetty and Roy. The kids are standing on the edge of the wagon, with the horses right in front of him. Hetty's holding a ukulele. Roy is holding the ropes attached to the horses. The wagon's roof has a little awning. There's a chimney, even windows. It's more like a trailer. Benjamin is standing on the ground next to the wagon. He's got a long, dark beard, straw hat, 
The Purnell's itinerant life took them through Kentucky, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. Benjamin preached at churches and on street corners, at religious meetings, and the homes of his benefactors. By 1902, the Purnells settled in Fostoria, Ohio, among a small group of followers who believed Benjamin was a messenger from God. One of the final messiahs on earth before paradise was going to begin. This is Chris Siriano. He's not a follower himself, but he's been studying this history for 30 years. He runs the House of David Museum in St. Joseph, Michigan, which is right next to Benton Harbor. He says back in the early 1900s, Benjamin's new followers totally supported him. They gave him a, a ton of money to get started, to get a church down there, which he called the God House, and Fostoria loved him. Once they settled into their new town and new church, their daughter Hetty got a job at a fireworks factory. And on her first day of work, Benjamin was giving the sermon at his church. And he could point out the window of the church to show that where the location was because it was a huge factory and they could see it from the church and during his sermon the fireworks factory caught on fire and imploded it was very obvious that there were probably no survivors to understand the Purnell's reaction to their daughter's death in the factory disaster you have to know that their version of Christianity was influenced by the Nazarite tradition described in the Old Testament. Here's Ron Taylor again. If you're a Nazarite, the Nazarite vow is not just cutting hair. It's, it, there's many other things involved with it. One of the things is you cannot have anything to do with the dead. Okay? So if you're a Nazarite and your uh, wife dies, your next of kin, your cousin, somebody dies, you can't partake of that. So going to a funeral or having to do with the dead was forbidden. Not showing up to your daughter's funeral? It didn't sit well with some of the townspeople in Fostoria. And though Ron Taylor disputes this part of the story, House of David Museum founder Chris Siriano, he claims some of Fostoria's townspeople stoned the Purnell's church. And he had already anticipated some resistance against himself for doing what he did and so they escaped in their horse and carriages. The Purnells ended up on the west side of Michigan. It was there where they met the Boschke brothers that had the second leading wagon factory in America behind Studebaker. The Boschkes were also members of a church called the New and Ladder House of Israel and members of that church had been waiting for a prophet someone they believed to be the seventh messenger of God. And that's who Benjamin claimed to be. And then they rushed him up to Grand Rapids and introduced him as that to their congregation. They totally accepted him. They believed him. He was so, so intelligent with all those teachings and so well informed that he convinced them all. Convinced them that if they stopped eating meat, drinking alcohol, having sex, and keeping their own money, they would live forever. Not spiritually speaking, actually. Benjamin promised everlasting life of the body for true believers. And so immediately, that whole congregation turns over all their worldly possessions to him and Mary, including the Boschke brothers, who gave him over $400,000 in cash. Plus, the Boschkes helped Benjamin and Mary buy a big piece of property in Benton Harbor, Michigan. 
gorgeous piece of property, huge. What did he have that they were so compelled by? That's very, very confusing how so many super highly intelligent, super successful, wealthy people could be convinced to give all, all everything they had up for a promise of everlasting life. But I think there's a time in life that people get to where that stuff doesn't matter anymore and you're worried about mortality. And if you give all this up, I'll teach you how to live forever and you'll never die. And you'll walk into a thousand years of paradise on earth. Amazingly, he convinced thousands of that. And these were no dummies. In 1903, on that sprawling property in Benton Harbor, Benjamin and Mary founded the Israelite House of David. Immediately, they started constructing these incredibly ornate buildings. The centerpiece of the property was the Shiloh Mansion, named after the walled city in ancient Israel. This is a massive mansion made from cement blocks. It looks like it's been beautifully maintained. There's balconies. There's fountains in the front. It's really beautiful. The Shiloh Mansion is on the uh, National Register of Historic Places, and it's considered the biggest home in the state of Michigan, single-family type home, 32,000-plus square feet, 102 rooms. The style is high Victorian. The property used to be open to the public for tours, but not anymore. It's highly, highly gigantic, ornate woodwork over every doorway, over every window, a three-story, hugely ornate staircase. Inside the Israelite House of David, marriages weren't recognized, and so husbands and wives who joined up together became brothers and sisters. Men had certain wings of the house, and women lived in the other wings. And so if you came there married as husband and wife, you became brother and sister, and then, but you wouldn't, like, would you remain partners? You had to be separated from them physically. The only time that you could be with your spouse is if you wanted to eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner in the married couple dining hall. So it was entirely up to you whether you wanted to be with your spouse that you came with. You had 30 minutes that you could eat with them. That's it. Then you go back to doing whatever you needed to do. Not only that, once you joined the colony, you had to sign over all your possessions and money to Benjamin. But despite the strict rules, word of the House of David spread fast. In 1903, Benjamin and Mary published what became one of their most famous religious texts, the Star of Bethlehem and it became very popular. You can find it online if you're curious. The word of Benjamin made it all the way to a group of Christian Israelites in Melbourne, Australia. 85 of them arrived on the same day in 1905. Amongst them were a husband and wife that owned a diamond mine, and a you know, brother and sister and husband and wife that were like world famous actors and actresses and on and on and on. They came from all over the world like that. And so he acquired all of their wealth and he just turned it into gold. They say that Benjamin was 
unbelievable at figuring out talents of people, even if maybe they didn't know they had that kind of talent. He could he could work with somebody and say, you know what, you should be doing this. And so I'm going to build you a building and I'm going to give you the help, the financial help and the workers to help you make what you should be doing uh, the best in the world. One of the Australians was an instrument maker named Joseph Hannaford. When he arrived, he built up a successful business manufacturing violins, mandolins, guitars, and fiddles. Whether you're an artist, whether you're a musician, whether you were uh, you know, a sculptor, whether you were a steam engineer, he would take your talent and make you succeed at your highest level because there was no holds. There was no, you didn't have to worry about money. You didn't have to worry about how am I going to afford to build a building? How am I going to pay the electric? How am I going to hire help? He did all that for you. You just had to do what you were good at. How many members lived there at the peak? There were just over 1,200 members there at the House of David property in Benton Harbor. There were over 4,000 members worldwide. When I think of a religious colony, I think of a group of people insulating themselves from the rest of the world. But the House of David was just the opposite. They had a huge amusement park and a zoo. They had the world's largest steam engine railroad ride at an amusement park. They made their own stringed instruments. They had their own recording studios. They had jazz bands and blues bands and orchestras and vaudeville shows and talent shows and they were considered in the 1920s the best vaudeville show in America. They took it from just a religion to one of the biggest uh, attended amusement parks in America back uh, in the days of early days of Coney Island and before Disneyland. And then in 1914 the House of David started a baseball team and they were really good. They wanted to play in the majors, and they were good enough to play in the majors, and they could beat a lot of major league teams. But back then, you had to be clean-shaven, and they weren't going to shave because they thought their whiskers were getting them to heaven. After the break, the House of David All-Stars crossed the color line. How did it happen that these religious dudes happened to be brilliant baseball players? Benjamin saw a bunch of guys that had joined. People joined from all over the world. Chris Siriano runs the House of David Museum. About 1912, I think, a family, a tally family, came from Arkansas, and they had four brothers that were super athletes, and they, Benjamin noticed that they were good ball players, so he just decided to start a baseball team. By 1915, they won the championship of Michigan in this area. And uh, by 1917, they're in the uh, Spalding Baseball Digest, which is like the baseball Bible. And 1919, they're on the front page of the New York Times and the front page of the uh, St. Louis Papers. And, you know, they're getting invited all over the North American continent to play. Ken Burns features them for a fleeting few minutes of his multi-part baseball documentary. There's an old black and white video of two bearded men playing catch. One of them catches the ball behind his back, then under his leg. The House of David ballplayers were basically the Harlem Globetrotters, years before the Globetrotters even existed. And one of the guys would pick his chin up and the ball would be hit hiding underneath his whiskers. 
was the baseball barnstorming partly motivated by spreading a way to spread their message? They did have uh, people that would distribute propaganda in the baseball stadiums. Um, I don't think that's really the purpose of going out. I think it was a purpose of getting those guys with a lot of energy out there and having some fun, and they made a lot of money. So much money, they were able to hire one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball to be their manager, Grover Cleveland Alexander. He was a funny guy, he was entertaining, and they didn't make him grow whiskers. The House of David baseball team became a national sensation. Chris Siriano says they were good enough to play in the majors, but because they wouldn't shave their beards, they weren't allowed in. And so, instead, they barnstormed across the country, setting up their own games with local semi-pro teams. They would show up early and they would they would stand in front of the barber shops and wave their hair around and and uh, braid their whiskers and sign autographs and dance in the streets and just put on a huge show. In addition to their biblical beards, the House of David was also responsible for showing baseball fans something else they hadn't seen before: an integrated game. Years before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in the major leagues, the House of David was traveling the country with African-American teams. You've probably heard of Satchel Paige before. He was the star pitcher of the Kansas City Monarchs, and arguably the best pitcher of all time. Paige and his Monarchs played tons of games against the House of David. But usually, the House of David ballplayers were invited to play in towns that the African-American players weren't welcome in but the bearded boys from Benton Harbor had a plan. They would show up to games early and meet with the local team's managers. And say, you know, hey, we're so excited. We're gonna put on an amazing show for you. We're so excited that there's thousands of people here to welcome us and treated us well and, and we'll do great for you guys. We'll make you proud, but here's the deal. Before you play us, you're gonna play this black team that's sitting in our other bus right outside of your city limits. And after you play them, you're going to play us. And then after the game, we're going to eat in a restaurant together. And, we're, and we both rented rooms for all of us at the hotel tonight. And Mr. Baseball Manager, we know that these guys have never been allowed in your stadium before, but they're going to play today. And if you don't allow that, the next town right outside of your town is sitting on rain check. And they're excited that if we don't play you guys, we're going to play them. And so can you make that all happen or should we just move on? The story of the House of David seems too good to be true. Between the baseball team and the amusement park, the beautiful mansions, the warm relations the colony had with its neighbors, to its respected leader, Benjamin Purnell. So where do you come down on the cult question? Was, was House of David a cult? That's a million dollar question and... Uh... I, uh, I often think that a cult is a bad, gives me bad vibes, and it was a bad thing in history, like, uh, you know, David Koresh or Jim Jones, where the House of David was a great thing in history, and they were kind-hearted inventors and creators and welcoming America to be entertained. And um, so what's the definition of a cult? I don't... I, it, 
it was a twisted form of Christianity, I think. And if they were a cult, they were a, a good cult. Be that as it may, the House of David was brought to its knees in the 1920s when Benjamin Purnell was accused of having sex with teenage girls from the colony. Rumors and accusations began piling up about how young women were taken from their sleep to uh, be whisked in darkness and brought over to Benjamin uh, in his third floor ballroom with music playing on his phonograph, Victrola, and uh, with uh, you know him sitting on the edge of the bed talking the word of God and that he was basically the son of God, kind of equal to Christ, and he had to do these things to them to save them, to give, to plant the eternal seed of life in them, to purify their blood. In 1927, the judge presiding over his case said, In the minds of his people, Benjamin has established a kingdom separated from the world in which he has held temporal and spiritual dominance ordering the physical lives of the members and directing the aspirations of their souls and the operations of their minds. It was one of the most sensationalized trials of the 20th century. 1,600 pages of uh, court documents and hundreds of people testifying both against and for him on both sides. Here's a piece of testimony reported by the St. Joseph Herald Press in June of 1927. On the stand that day was 24-year-old Gladys Rubel. As an infant, Rubel was one of the original 85 Australians to migrate to Benton Harbor with her family. How old were you at the time of this first visit to Benjamin's room? I was 13 and a half years old. Were you given any warnings when you left Benjamin? Yes. He told me not to tell my mother, and not to put it in my written monthly confession, as there was nothing wrong with it. Did you think there was anything wrong about it at the time? No, I I don't believe I did. I didn't think the Son of Man could sin. Rubel went on to say that a confidant of Benjamin's, an older woman named Mary Ranger, was in charge of the colony's young girls. When I came back to Mary Ranger after my visit to Benjamin's room and cried, she told me I should feel honored that the Son of Man had chosen me. She told me That was the only way I could get my blood cleansed and become immortal. Benjamin Purnell theorized that his accusers were liars and after his money. He told a newspaper reporter at the time, I have lived a stainless life ever since I received this most holy faith those 33 years ago. And the stories that I ruined those young girls under the guise of religious rites are total falsehoods money, the root of all evil, is behind this. It is blackmail, pure and simple, and I have learned that people will do anything for money. In the end, he was acquitted of all the rape charges. He was found guilty of operating a religion under false pretenses for personal gain because he did live like a king and they could prove it. But before Benjamin Purnell could be sentenced, he died of tuberculosis. And because they thought that he was the Messiah, and like Christ, they thought he was going to rise again. So they kept him damp, wrapped in damp, warm towels for eight days. And finally the Barron County coroner went in and 
said, we're going to bury him or you're going to bury him. And they had already sent away for the embalming technique that had uh, embalmed the Russian emperor, Lenin. And so they embalmed him, uh, embalmed his body, and they put him in a hermetically sealed glass coffin where they thought that he would rise up again and lead them into paradise on earth. And he's still there. Where is that? 91 years later in the diamond house in his mansion on the second floor. <laughs> yeah, heavy duty. He still looks, he, he looks like he just died. They did an amazing job with his body of, of preserving him. And we can't go in there, but you've saw, you've seen him. What does he look like? Just looks like an old man that just died. You know, he aged, the tuberculosis aged him a lot. It was rough on him. Chris last saw the body in the glass coffin in 2004. He says Benjamin was laying there peacefully with his white hair and beard and gray suit. His writing desk remained in the room, along with photos on the wall. In 1927, after Benjamin died, there was mass pandemonium at the house of David. So Mary knew what Benjamin was preaching more than anybody on the planet from 16 years old. And so naturally, she should have been the person that continued on at the house of David to bring in, continue bringing in new members and continue the story. Uh, but the guy that defended Benjamin during the giant trials of 1926-27, Judge Harry T. Dewhurst, uh, and from California, at that time, Judge Dewhurst said, I, I'm the leader of the House of David now. I'm going to take over. The man is the head of this household. There's no woman that's going to be the head of this household. And so they, he went to war with Mary and actually went to trial against her, sued her for the leadership. And it went all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court, and he won. And so the court said, basically, Mary, you need to leave. You have to leave the property. And so she took with her a very small amount of cash and possessions. and But she did take with her like 300 and some plus members, the very earliest people that had joined the colony when it was just her and Ben. Those people walked with her and she started what she called the Israelite House of David as reorganized by Mary Purnell, which later became Mary's City of David and now today referred to as just the City of David. It was the exact same thing. She just went down the road a thousand feet and across the road and started her own house of David. Did they build it from scratch? They built it from scratch. All right, now I'm standing at the entrance to Mary's city of David. There's a Michigan historic site sign right at the entrance. It says, after the death of Benjamin Purnell in 1927, the Israelite House of David religious community split over spiritual direction and accumulation of assets. Purnell's wife, Mary, left and founded Mary's City of David on this adjacent site in 1930. At the split, it became war. It became a brother would stay at the House of David and a sister would go at the City of David. There was major animosity between the two. They couldn't stand each other. It's at Mary's City of David, where I met Ron Taylor. 
His family sided with Mary after the split. Today, Ron is one of just two members remaining at Mary's City of David. He's 68 years old, so he wasn't even alive during Benjamin's trial. He actually grew up outside the faith, but his grandparents were members. They moved to Benton Harbor from Sydney, Australia in the early 1930s. My dad was three years old when they joined. My dad decided uh, that he, he believed it, but he, you know, he met a wonderful woman, of course, and so left the colony, married, had the children. I'm sister and I, the surviving of, of three. And when Ron was in his 20s, he traveled around a lot. But then he came back to Benton Harbor in the 1970s. And so I got a job working at the greenhouse here, and I was already studying religions of the world. I was fascinated with religion when it, from a kid up, you know. So I had a good smattering of that wherever I went, Zen Center in San Francisco, and, and studied Hinduism. And there was a Jewish mystic that was part of a, a group in Detroit that I was part of. But when I started reading this, I thought, wow, this is really different. I really like this. Did you have any reservations about taking a, a celibacy vow? Because you had lived a life without yeah. that, I would yeah. imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had girlfriends, and I, I was going to marry at one time and almost did. And uh, we've, we've remained friends. Uh, it was a real wonderful thing that we didn't marry. I just wanted something much more than that. And I thought joining a religious society, having a religious belief, was a step above that. What is it? feel like to be one of two remaining members? Well, that's a good question. A lot of people wonder how I feel about that. I feel kind of uh, blessed. I do. I, I, um, I knew as a child I was going to live a different life. Back in, when I joined, there were 56. I feel very at home, feel very comfortable, and I like what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it as long as God allows me to do it. This is a naive question just because I don't know, but you believe in um, in everlasting life. So how do you understand when you see all your brothers and sisters dying? That's, that's actually, it's actually prophesied of that the time would come when the house of David would come down to so few that one would do the work of ten. Well, we've been there for a while. Like Mary's city of David, the original Israelite house of David down the street only has a few members left. The two factions, divided only by a small stretch of pavement in Benton Harbor, Michigan, have put their grievances aside. And uh, in fact, when I was working at the greenhouse before I was a member, the House of David people came over here and said, we're gonna plant a whole field of potatoes in one of our vacant properties. We have everything but the potato digger, and that's what you have. If you'll help us harvest and help us maintain, you can get all the potatoes you want all year in, in our dugout. So the colonies worked together on the same potato field, and we, I went over there as part of the crew because I wanted to be part of that. I thought that was so cool. And today it's like, it's, it's basically, we're, we're both uh, small, uh, struggling to maintain and go on and keep up. And it's basically whenever one can help the other, we do. And that's just the way it is. Zach, that's an amazing story. But I have to wonder, what happens to the property when all the believers are gone? Well, the original House of David has actually been embroiled in a lawsuit recently. The Detroit News named two guys who are relatively recent converts to the House of David, and they were sued as part of an alleged conspiracy to loot the organization of a bunch of money, $50 million. Uh, those guys have not commented, but the suit was actually dismissed um, by an Oakland County judge recently. 
So the story continues. I'm not really sure what's going to happen. Zach Rosen, thanks for today's story. Thank you, Roger. Special thanks to Michelle Oliver and Brandon Crawford for acting out our testimony scene. If you'd like to see some photos and other information about the House of David, visit our website, mismatchpodcast.com. Oh, and consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts if that's how you're hearing us. Next time on Mismatch, Teddy Roosevelt's harrowing journey on one of the most dangerous rivers in the world. Thanks for listening to Mismatch.